everywhere. Interest rate calculator. Interest exactly. <laughs> your, exactly. Your mortgage calculator. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um that, that that stuff definitely follows, you know, that you know, you're able to able to manage. Mm-hmm. And I think um even just some of the complexity that we have dealt with as actually. So we generally work in industries that are complicated. And um that technical complexity does mean that when we see different business model, so like a property classified business model, mm. it's a simpler business model to an insurance business model. And that and that allows then, you know, us to certainly me to better understand what the drivers are of an underlying classified business model. Whereas I think if you had to switch it around and somebody who hasn't had the training we've had trying to understand an insurance business model, it is much, much, much tougher. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that uh, I have lots of gratitude for that technical translation across that, um, you know, it has made it easy to settle into some of the business conversations because we understand we understand the business drivers. So for actuaries who do want to, you know, play up these, you know, normative skills and perhaps get involved in wider fields and non-traditional areas, what advice would you give? <laughs> I think maybe the first thing is actually to realize that that you have them, mm. that that they actually exist, and to think really hard about what they are. So, um, uh, and I'm and I'm not just doing this because it's part of our requirements as professionals to have diffractive conversations and to write it down and all of that. But that process actually does help you hone what it is that you bring as a professional, mm. and and it has. To me, anyway, extremely useful uh, additional, uh, extremely useful sort of additional bulls on that. So once you've once you've had the conversation and figured out what you're good at, you can then start working out. Well, maybe I need to improve on other areas, and then you can have those conversations. But you can also then communicate to others why it is that this is something that you are good at, mm. and and it it unlocks different parts of your mind and it unlocks different ways of communicating and it, it also unlocks a little you know, a little bit of a different ways of thinking about yourself. So so that would be the advice but spend spend enough time on the normative side and try and and try and sort of better understand yourself. I mean it is actually mm-hmm. self understanding. Start being aware. Start being aware. There's yeah. self awareness. Yeah. And I think that you know if you're an actuary that only focuses on the technical skills and not the normative as well, I think that's where um Maybe you're not fully aware of just the power you have, because you can actually play across both quite comfortably. Um, and and it uh, you know this concept of technical actuaries in my career, I've never actually seen that before. In the the, the true, you know, the the caricature that sometimes ends up on TV screens, and you know that person, I've never met them in South Africa, never, um, because even the most technical technically strong actuaries mm. have such a amazing sort of professional component to them. And that's the bit that I think people need to reflect on as they as they think about what they want to do. And you would recommend, you know, having that reflection, if not making a move, at least, you know, thinking about it, having those conversations. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't have to lead. I mean, you know, the move the move in of, across industries is just one way of of um, it's just one way of maybe allowing some of those insights to play themselves out. Mm-hmm. I think if you know doing that reflection and then pitching up differently at work 
uh, changes the way you you approach um, you approach work. My um, my uh, interestingly, my wife recently has been talking um, quite a bit in media circles on a concept called bore out, um, where people are actually getting bored at work, and <laughs> and it, uh, it and and that's that's you know the, the remedy to that is growth and learning and changing and just figuring new stuff out. And this is exactly in that. And if people are feeling a little bit uncomfortable, you're probably sitting in a place where there's a lot of opportunity. It's just reframing how you see the opportunity. I, yeah, I can think of so many examples <laughs> in my life, yeah. you know, and, and that is where, and it sounds cliche, but that's where the, the growth happens. Yes. Um, yeah. So back to the reading, what's your perfect reading setting? Sure. So... I think with the, so I have three small boys Mm -hmm. and with the three small boys, there is no perfect reading setting. (laughs) There's only a reading setting. (laughs) Take what you can get. (laughs) I take what I can get. And so maybe there's two, there's two elements, two uh, some almost non-negotiables. I think the one is like, it can't be like extremely noisy. So as long as it's about a coffee shop level of noise, I can, I can probably handle it. Kind of flight noise. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Just, just that hum. Um, And the other one is, I don't like to be rushed when I'm reading it, so when I'm reading anything. So I'd like to choose when I start and when I end. And so that can sometimes be tricky. Um, but uh, if I can get those two things to work, then it's working. Okay. Uh, what that invariably means is that uh, if, I, if I can get it right, it's just before bed. So nighttime, bedtime for a little while. Um, I, uh, you, well, when I'm in an airplane, I find sitting in an airplane a very good time to, to read a bunch of things. No um, phones to distract you. Phones and generally just, you know, a little bit of white noise from the engines and yeah. good to go. Um, and actually I read a lot of, I read a lot standing at the bar, our bar at home. Um, Interesting. So we have, uh, we, we, uh, and, and that, that actually I find is a very, useful situation for me because first of all standing I'm a big fan of standing and and working and reading and things and it's at the bar so it works it works really well so can you drink and eat while you're reading I can definitely I can okay yeah um and especially and that adds to the joy actually the the bits not not at bedtime but the bits at the bar in particular I enjoy because then it's having a little bit a little bit to drink and having and reading as well it's and snacks and whatever it's I quite enjoy. What's your favorite reading snack? <laughs> um, whatever actually is there. There's nothing. Uh, it's really it's more the ritual. It's more the ritual, exactly. Yeah, yeah a little bit of biltong, mm-hmm. nuts, that sort of thing. Yeah, whatever's available at the, at the bar at the time. Amazing. <laughs> Can you read us your favorite quote from Autobiography of Yogi? Yes, definitely. Um, okay, so so this quote was when. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda was describing another yogi. So he fitted the Vedic definition of a man of God, a man of God. Softer than the flower where kindness is concerned and stronger than thunder when principles are at stake. Ken, you know, it was one quote out of thousands in this book. I could have probably picked one quote from every two pages that I read given how how dense it was, but you know that spoke to me. It's like um, a, a steel hand in a velvet glove kind of thing. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. 
All right. What's what's the fourth book? Oh, book number four. Okay. Yeah. So this one, um, this one is called "The Happiest Man on Earth," and it's by um, it's by Eddie Jaku. Now this is, um, you know, this is this is a book that I received in twenty twenty two, I think, also for um, as a as a gift, um, and and I actually read it extremely quickly. It's a it's a very easy read. It's not easy because of the content. Content is is quite quite heavy content. It's easy because of the way this gentleman has written the story. And it's a story of someone surviving the Holocaust mm-hmm. and the horrendous treatment that he had, had underwent. But also, and this is why he described himself as the happiest man, it's the it's the philosophies and the life lessons that he had picked up that actually led him to led him to where uh, where he was at the time he wrote this book. Um, you know, if you if you read it and what he went through and him and other people, it's just it's unbelievable. Mm. Um, and I think you know we at school and in various situations, uh, various academic situations, we get some knowledge because you're learning it from a history perspective or from you know uh, you are being taught something. But mm. hearing it from somebody who went through it is is um is absolutely sort of life changing actually when you when you read it mm-hmm. uh, when I read it at least um you know uh, Eddie Jaku um he passed away two years ago at the age of a hundred and one oh, sorry three years ago at the age oh. of a hundred and one right given everything that he had gone through was just amazing and so so you know this book for me the reason it's so important is it it's just a gratitude book. It just sort of reminds me, and and anybody actually who's feeling perhaps that things are a little bit too much and things are a little bit busy and I can't balance this and I can't balance that and you know all of it seems a bit overwhelming. This does help put things in perspective. Um, it's by no means minimizing anyone's problems, mm. but it definitely gives you a perspective how what actually happiness means and you know what uh, what what. Um, sort of uh, how can you get comfortable in in the situation that you're in that's how I found it amazing absolutely amazing do you have a quote from from the book that you like? I do I do have a quote from this as well um so sure yeah okay so he says um there are always miracles in the world even when all seems hopeless and when there are no miracles, you can make them happen. With a simple act of kindness, you can save another person from despair. And that might just save their life. And that is the greatest miracle of all. And this kindness quote and this man's approach to just being, uh, it's, it is unbelievable. I mean, that was... Have, have you read other survivor accounts or Holocaust books? Uh, no, this is the first one. This is the first one, and so so it's definitely spurred um, spurred something in this because it you know the philosophies I think the philosophies of people that have been through something like that must be very interesting. Yeah, I think for me, so, you know, some of the most impactful books I've read have been I haven't read this one. I'll add it to the to my list, but have been these Holocaust memoirs. You know, Viktor Frankl, Elie Wiesel, Martin Gray. Um, 
And they all have these extremely profound philosophies, as you say, that, you know, actually so obvious and, you know, can really just change your life in a sentence. You are very involved in ASA and education and leadership. Can you tell us a bit about your work on ASA on the education side and then excitingly your role as president-elect? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, I've been I've been on the education. Well, my first involvement in education was actually during the localization of uh, the uh, the actual exams in the mm-hmm. late two thousands uh, into twenty ten. Um, I was in council at the time, and so I'd been involved quite heavily mm-hmm. in that. Um, and some of the papers that I'd written at that time were all around how students and their psychosocial support networks, uh, you know, where how the interactions work, um, and how we can make uh, how students can become more successful. How can we get better, better success to the actual qualification system? Um, so I wrote a couple of papers on that and try to understand what the, what the, um, almost the flow of students through the system actually looked like. I remember some of that work. <laughs> yes, and 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 you would, yeah, Pamela. Of course, you would. Uh, being um, being someone who who took up the mantle wonderfully and and produced <laughs> some amazing work of your own, uh, which. Uh, You've subsequently presented at various conventions as well, which is fantastic. Um, Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, um, you know, when we when we went abroad, I I took a break from um, from serving on the actuarial society structures. But when I got back in 2014, I then rejoined the education board, and and then about four years ago, took over as chair three to four years ago, took over as chair of the education board. And so the work, um, I felt it has, I felt it was a little bit of coming full circle that, uh, that you know, the um, uh, the localization of the exams happened, various recommendations around the sub- support that we needed to create as a society, coming back and then actually getting a chance to run some of that was, was absolutely fantastic. So would you say that localization process has been a success? So I, um, I think it was the right. It was definitely the right strategic move mm-hmm. for the actual society. I think, by all accounts, I would regard it as a success. I think the, um, you know, having a society as large as we are, and being able to proudly produce our own local examinations and content appropriate for those examinations. And teaching students in a on curricula that are designed for the South African context, mm-hmm. that is, that is what we're about. We're not borrowing concepts from anybody else, and we're not, you know, um, we're not training actuaries for a different environment. Training actuaries for, for South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it has been. I think it's been a success. I think we have. Um, I think we've established an extremely strong governance structure through our board of examiner structure. And then the education board, we've got good relationships across the different stakeholders. Um, the university system is the backbone of the South African um, actual education system. Yeah. Um, and and all the work that goes on, mostly by volunteers, to improve the curriculum, to bring in new and exciting concepts, data science, potentially generative AI eventually, the work done to deliver tuition interventions, the work done to accredit universities, the work done to engage students on an ongoing basis, um, uh, normative skills development, which for many countries is a bit of a world first. Some of the way we've approached our 
our um uh our ongoing normative skills development is is fantastic and so i think we've got a lot of very interesting stuff that's happening here um and and we've got extremely talented people in the system that have uh, that have put their hand up and been counted and didn't just do work they furthered it they vastly improved um, what we've achieved so the education work has been has been wonderful yeah um, and i actually get involved as well outside of administration and leadership i mean i still do marking and i still do examining a little bit of um a little bit of tuition if needed so there is there is a you know the, I, I do have a very sort of strong passion towards the education side mm. um that that will be put under a bit of pressure and tested now with the new role as president elect and as I move into um, the president role, it's going to be a busy four years. I hope to be as well as in, I hope to be um, involved as closely as possible still with the education system. Um, and uh, uh, but the good news is they are strong leaders all around all around that education system as well. And does that kind of thing make you optimistic about the future of South Africa? It's almost a bit of a microcosm for you know people so invested in our future and our education and our young actuaries and definitely so you know you know the one um the one area where i have got a better understanding now than i had before but i'm definitely not sort of an expert in yet um so i represent the actual society on the south african maths foundation mm-hmm. board um and i view that as i mean that's the feeder group that will now become actuaries in the future the and all the work that that board does around um, it's predominantly Olympian focused at the moment, but um, the interventions being um, pulled together across multiple industry bodies and multiple stakeholders under the broader banner that actually there's a crisis here and that we need to solve this crisis. If you watch, if, if I, as I have watched the way um, strong leaders have them coalesced around this organizations together allocated resources got aligned yeah it's not all perfect and yes there's still a bit of coordination and alliances still need to be worked on but it has been really really uh cool to see that there are so many people still invested and that's the point you know you know we we talked about it before from the data that i see there are still enough people (laughs) committed 100 percent to make this work and and the good news is there's people in the system that understand the problems and can articulate the problems and then, you know, looking for a solution. So none of it's silver bullet stuff, a lot of it's systematic, especially our maths issues in mm. South Africa are, are a legacy, um, a legacy of our past. Um but no problem is unsolvable. Uh that's the right people. Yeah, and these are people who who have options, who could leave if they wanted to, exactly. but, but realize that it's worth staying. Exactly, exactly, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, look, and we certainly, we certainly see it as a family, and we, uh, we uh, see it as a friends group, and it's obviously topics that enter conversation regularly mm-hmm. at work, at family gatherings, at social gatherings. These are topics that everyone sort of grapples with. Um, but again, I mean, it's, you know, things can be bad and getting better at the same time <laughs> this is why we've chosen your most influential <laughs> influential books to talk about well, what's the the last book you have yeah so the last book came so the last book 
is a book by Julia Julia Middleton, um, and it's called Cultural Cultural Intelligence. Now, um, this book was was required reading for a leadership course that I had the privilege of going on in twenty fifteen and twenty seventeen. So it was an on-site leadership course in Kenya and in Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. and um, mainly mainly South Africans in the contingent, but lots of other um, uh, people with uh, in, in countries outside of South Africa on the continent, so many different nationalities. Um, and the, cons- the core of the course was about leading across cultural boundaries, leading across international boundaries, and being able to influence people from very different backgrounds, diverse backgrounds. And so this was required reading. Okay. Um, Julia Middleton is the head of an organization called Common Purpose, and they actually ran the, ran the leadership courses for us. And the core of this is about is about um, or the or the center of the book is around concepts of core and flex. So, core the core your core are the strongest beliefs that you hold and the value systems that you hold that you are not willing to change for anything. And then the flex are the, is that part of you that you actually are willing to change and adapt depending on the situation that you're in. And cultural intelligence in the way this book talks about it is being able to better understand where your core and flex is doing work on that core if your core is too big okay. because in a world where we actually are required to hold something dear and then actually demonstrate a little bit of flexibility around others um, knowing where that line is not very important for you and so a lot of the practice was around finding that line um, the other, the other important thing that we were introduced to in this intervention was around listening. That was the first time I had a proper intervention around listening. Now, the, the, the exercises and the practice that come out of this were around um, listening with your head, which most of us do. So we're beyond now listening to respond. So this is, you know, okay. listening to respond oh, that was, beyond that. That, that, yeah. that you understand you should listen to respond, yeah. Okay. So now you're listening to the person with your head. And what you're trying to do is work out like logically and factually what are they saying, rationalizing, getting it in. Um, the second layer of that is listening with your heart. Okay. So now this is at an emotional level. So you're listening not just not just with what the facts they say, but how they're saying it, what emotion is behind it, what are you imputing from that sort of stuff. And then the last one, and that's what then this level took a long time to practice, and obviously we all still practice it, but it was something called listening with your soul. Now that is basically Deep. you're listening to the person, but you are putting yourself in their position. Okay. You are almost being them as they're telling you the story and trying to now work out what they are actually saying. And so you're putting their context around it and everything you can possibly imagine. And and the whole point of that was about much deeper listening skills and much deeper listening um, uh, uh, the people out of this course hopefully would have ended up with much deeper listening abilities and it is very difficult to apply all the time then to be honest most of us including me get caught at that listening to respond stage and you know but the knowledge that those other layers exist and the the willingness to want to practice as much as you can that for me was was extremely valuable, and so this book changed the way I thought about a lot of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the evolution of um, so IQ to EQ, and then beyond EQ is cultural intelligence CQ. Okay, um, and uh, 
and yeah, I thought it was I thought it was important. It was really important. How how does this play into your interest in you know diversity, equity, inclusion, and your leadership positions and sure, yeah, approach very much, very much. So so you know the 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 interest I have in diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. Some of it is structural. So I chair, I chair the trans- transformation committee, and I've had roles in transformation in my various employers over time. Um, but I'm also very interested in core concepts like equality and fairness and justice. And when the structure is wrong or the system is wrong, how do you change the system and how do you change the structure? And it's that sort of stuff that I formed. Well, that I actually like to would like you know like to think through quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Books like this certainly help me work out other people's perspectives much much more clearly. Um, mm-hmm. Especially the listening bit. Um, a lot of the problems that we currently face, I think, are because actually people are just not listening to each other, uh, and and maybe they're listening beyond to respond, but then they're stopping at the you know, they're stopping at the factual level or the heart level or the, and I think it's about getting it all the way down. And so, um, you know, the translation of this book into scalable intervention that can change thousands of people at a time, mm-hmm. I haven't quite worked that out yet, but I certainly will do it as often as I can in a smaller group as possible, as, as necessary to just keep on reiterating the same, the same thing. So listening is actually at the core of a lot of what I believe is is sort of what we're struggling with. It feels, from what you're saying, it's almost a time element as well because if you don't respond immediately, you know, people are onto the next thing or lose interest or become impatient. Yeah. Um, so how do you show that you are listening well when you actually, you know, responding isn't the immediate thing you should do? Yes. Yes, no, yeah, and it's really it's really harder because everyone everyone has their own time frame of things, and um, you know some things are quite quick, and uh, or, or the expectation is that something will happen quite quick, and other people sort of have a much longer time frame. And when you're responding as a leader, or when you're responding in even even smaller groups, actually just trying to have the conversation, the diverse range of timing will drastically you know influence what you how what you say is perceived by people because you could be saying it you could be saying something and actually it's just not fast enough you're not working fast enough yeah. um and it's that sort of stuff that that um you know, it makes it really hard when it's topics like this especially diversity equity inclusion topics which are that if you talk about some concepts gender race hundreds of years of pressure cooker boiling because it's not it's not you know things are not changing um and you talk about other elements as well, you know, long, long standing issues that are being grappled with here. Um, so I don't really have an answer except for people, you know, I have tried to, as far as possible, humanize everyone in the process that everyone here is trying to achieve an outcome or trying to achieve the best possible outcome. And they're all human beings with all the foibles and all the stuff that we are we were talking through already um and i think i think it's about this trust in leadership that you know you trusting that someone is doing their best and going to try and move it along as fast as they possibly even benefit of the doubt 
think about their intention. Not think, think about and and it yes exactly and and you know there is that thing where people say you know we're very quick to judge other people by their actions but not by their intention. That's for us right. different. The other way about <laughs> yeah. right, um, and that cuts both ways. I think you know mm-hmm. there's a you can't have too much of one and too much and too little of the other. But you know I think I think there's there's a little bit more of that uh, that can help. Okay. Do you have a quote you can read from cultural intelligence? Yeah, I do. Um, I've got a couple. I've got uh, a couple of quotes. So the first one: um, a measure of a person's power is that their circle of influence is greater than their circle of control. Um, and then the second one, and it speaks a little bit of the progression. Uh, and this is this is um, the book's premise: organizations often appoint leaders for their IQ. Mm-hmm. Then years later, they sack them for their lack of EQ, which is emotional intelligence. And then Common Purpose argues that in the future, they will promote for CQ, which is cultural intelligence, and uh, and everything associated with it. Well, they say culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, exactly. Peter <laughs> Jacker had it right <laughs> many, many years ago. No, exactly. Um, so how do you, you know, in your roles as the president-elect, you know, what are some of your priorities? How do you think all these, these books and... Um, influences will kind of um, have an impact on how you lead the society. Yeah, so the society, the society currently has a, has a clear strategy around, um, around assurance and member support, um, um, acquis- the acquisition pipeline of members, keeping us as healthy as possible as a society, uh, the professionalism of the members, all of that, that's all part of the strategy. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with the, ASA, the actual society strategy. It is solid. We've got enough things to do. I think it's about the ne- the leadership levels or the next sort of leaders just taking it to uh, continues to improve, take it to another level, continue to be aware to the environment that we're in. Because a lot of times the strategy the strategy probably is okay, but then the environment changes, and actually it just needs to be you know, tweaked to the environment that we're in. I think right now, you know, we are. We are grappling with big, weighty professionalism issues, governance issues, disciplinary issues. Mm. We're grappling with um, relevance questions in some parts of the country or some parts of government. All of that, you know, has to be a part of certainly how I'm thinking about the world. Um, I haven't yet gone through the process of. Uh, sort of thinking to myself the refreshing refreshing of the strategy or anything like that. I mean, my my approach has been a lot more, naturally a lot more collaborative. Um, Through the current president, um, Costa, working with him and myself, then there will be a council strat day coming up and we'll be getting much broader views on where we think we need to go as a profession. Mm -hmm. Um, I see my biggest role as in prioritization and, Mm -hmm. and working with that's your priority. Exactly. My priority is to prioritize. Because um, we are a, a profession with limited resources. Mm. Um, South Africa is a big association, a society, but also, you know, not as big as some of the, the big brothers and sisters we have out there. Um, and so how do we maximize our our limited resource is really, really, I think, what the, what the rule is. We have an extremely strong executive team within the, Within the actual society office as well, that that um, keeps this organization on even keel and moving forward. And so, you know, between the volunteer leaders, the 
executive leaders, the council leaders. We've got we've got you know we've got enough strong-minded, extremely good people in the mix, and mm. um, just getting us focused on the on the right stuff. I believe you're you're the right guy to do it. <laughs> Thank you. So we've been through all the books. Can you just recap their names and authors again for yes, those who yes. want to write it down? Sure, sure. So, so the first one was Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Uh, the next one was uh, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Um, we then looked at Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, we had The Happiest Man on Earth by Eddie Jaku. And then we had Cultural Intelligence by Julia Middleton. I'm going to do something very cruel and say, you're going to a desert island. You can only bring one of these books with you. Which one will it be? Sure, only one. Um, well, given that I need to still read the autobiography of a yogi many more times, I'd probably take that one because it would take me the rest of my life to, to actually get the full benefit of it. That'll keep you busy for a while. That'll keep me very busy. Yes. Yeah. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions yeah, about sure. your reading, just because I'm curious. So what's the book you would say you recommend to the most people or gift to the most people? So I actually haven't gifted books in a while, beyond kids' books. Um, beyond <laughs> kids' counts. books, I haven't. Uh, um, and so um, it's not going to be a quick fire question, actually. It's, okay. it's going to be a mix depending on the person and depending on what they, um, what they seem to like. You know, a bunch of the nonfiction stuff predominantly is the one I would I would start recommending. Okay. Uh, do you like Kindle or physical? Books? No, physical, physical, definitely. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if you're not enjoying a book, do you DNF as and do not finish? Yes, yes, uh, with much uh, heartache because I am a bit of a completer finisher personality, but I do. You know, life's too, life too short. I, I still need to overcome that, that barrier, <laughs> that mental barrier. Well, if you want, if you want a perspective, like a FOMO perspective on that, um, so I worked it out. I read, I read, I don't know, maybe ten books a year, ten to twelve a year. Okay, not not, not a lot, but that's sort quality of mix, right? And um, if I if I live as long as my paternal grandfather, that gives me another five hundred books for the rest of my life. So, life is too short. To who is spending time, given all the millions of books out there, I need to that, choose five hundred. That is one of the most depressing thoughts. It's like you won't be able to read all the books. You can't read them all. Yeah, that are out there. <laughs> Do you think audio books are cheating? Or no, no, I think they're good. I think they're really practical, really practical. Do you judge a book by its cover? Yes, the back cover. <laughs> yeah, you were mentioning about the the market you go to. Um, if you wrote a book, what do you think the subject would be? Sure. Um, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I think it'll be something around, uh, hopefully something around your brain and just how powerful it can be. And if you unleash that power, what can happen? A little bit of spirituality, a little bit of leadership, a little bit of everything. Okay. What age do you think children should re learn to read at? Uh, in the womb. <laughs> that's the correct answer. <laughs> Is that okay? I might be invited again to the podcast. Then. Okay, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, you may be cancelled, but, but not on this podcast. Um, and when you read fiction, do you value prose or plot? Uh, plot, definitely plot. Okay. And which book have you reread the most in your life? So, uh, kids' books are the ones that I have uh, as as a child. I've read a couple of times. Hardy Boys books in particular. Okay. But since then, since about matric. It's actually only been segments or sections of books 
I haven't actually read an entire book. Um, and it's partly, I'm putting it down to partly this 500 book calculation of mine that <laughs> I got to get moving. I feel the same as, I feel, you know, as much as I love a book, I don't need to read it again. I'd rather, you know, read something else. Yeah. And what are you currently reading? Um, so that FOMO thing is like quite deep. So I actually have, I, I read a couple books at a time. So Okay, that's, yes, that's yeah. a good question as well. Yeah. So, so right now it's four books. Um, okay. It's uh, two fiction, two fiction books. One is um, uh, about uh, a sort of crime in sort of medieval England. And the other one is a Tom Clancy thriller sort of uh, thing. Um, and then two nonfiction books, which, uh, oh, sorry, one nonfiction book, which is, um, uh, by Nancy Klein, the the person who invented the time to think methodology, the promise that changes everything. Um, and, and then I'm reading actually that book I mentioned, my son. Uh, it's a tween science fiction oh, thriller that okay. he read in like a few weeks, and I thought, well, this is very interesting. And so I've actually been reading this book that he <laughs> has another like uh, just filler. Um, and Yeah, just just to see what. Do you know the name? It's called uh, it's called Adam Two. Adam Serial, uh, uh, very very interesting book. Actually, it was very popular in their school, and there was huge queues at the libraries, and it was crazy. Mm-hmm. So he went to exclusive books and bought it himself. Yeah. And that's why I thought, well, if it's that important, yeah, I'm gonna read it. Next yeah. Harry Potter, yeah, exactly. That <laughs> no, no, is very good, very good book. And then, last question: Where can people find you? Um, and is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Um, well, so. You're definitely welcome, you know, on most social media, but LinkedIn is probably the best place if anyone wants to, if anyone wants to connect. Um, and um, now maybe the last things to share, just be kind to people, just build up, build up the people around you, um, um, you know, be as inclusive as possible, open up, open up your environment and just keep on learning, keep on learning, relearning and growing. And reading. And reading, go through reading. Thank you so much, Nilin. It's been an absolute privilege. That was wonderful to be here. Thank you, Pebble. Thank you so much. 